We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brittany Eklund, and I'm here with Dylan Cave, and our guest today is Dr. Murli Muraladaran. Murli is an associate professor at the School of Business. He has spent close to two decades in the corporate world and in international business and in marketing before joining academia. He has been at McEwen for nine years and is presently the chair of the Department of International Business, Marketing, Strategy, and Law. And today we're going to be talking all about product recalls. Hello, Murli. It's so nice to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Brittany and Dylan. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm not sure whether I'm worthy of that, but then thank you again. (laughs) Absolutely. I guarantee that you are. Um, So really, I'd love for you to start off by telling us why you decided to study business and what about your field really excites you. Yeah. You know, like I said before, I'm from India and... uh, and there in India, after grade 12, everybody's gunning to do either an engineering degree or a, or a medical, you know, they go to med school. So I was one of the, you know, guys who decided to do engineering. So after five years of engineering, uh, you know, uh, you typically get a job where you need to work in the shop floor. And I wasn't too sure wanting to work in the shop floor, you know, dirtying my hands. So, so the easiest and the best way is to do an MBA, do a business management and then move to uh, the corporate world. And that's when you get into, you, know, you get a white collar job and then go, 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 go on. So uh, that's the reason that I, uh, I, now when I think back, I think I should have stayed back in engineering, you know, <laughs> done some, you know. Uh, but then yes, business is also equally important because that actually drives the economy, right? Creation of wealth, generation of wealth. So if there were no businessmen, there's no wealth and there's no wealth, there's no employment, there's no food to eat and so on. So uh, that's the very, very philosophical drive that made me, uh, inner drive that made me take uh, business. Uh, and I, and I, and, I, and like, like I said, I moved into uh, uh, the corporate world. I worked with one of the leading uh, multinationals from India, the Tata Group. Uh, you know, uh, they make, you've heard of the Jaguar yeah. car. I Land think Rover, we definitely heard of the Land Jaguar. Rover, <laughs> yeah. Tetley T. All these are brands owned by the Tata Group. So, oh, wow. And I moved, and you know, yeah, uh, I, I moved to marketing, spent uh, close to three or four years in uh, domestic marketing, and that's when India opened up to the world, you know, the closed economy. And everybody is gunning to do exports, international business, and I was pushed into international business. I didn't major in international business, you know, uh, but I did marketing. So, Spent 20 years and uh, 22 years to be precise at various levels and then decided to give back to society. And that's when I decided to do a PhD and come to academia. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it, you it, get what you needed out of it and now you want to share your knowledge with, yeah. with people. It was that's... pretty challenging because everybody said, oh, my relatives, my wife, if I had a wife and a little girl, they all said, what the hell are you doing? You're making so much of money back in <laughs> India and uh, you want to go work, you know, do a PhD where you earn just say how much, $500, $600 a month and live on a scholarships, live in a one bedroom apartment. It was pretty challenging for me also and completely out of <clears throat> touch with school, you know, you guys know, out of touch at school and forgotten old statistics and so on. It was a challenge <laughs> when I came here, but by the grace of God, yes. 
That's amazing. Well, yeah. definitely glad to have you. Uh, what what attracted you to these issues that we're talking about of product recalls? Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> it was during my PhD. I did my PhD at the University of Manitoba. And, uh, uh, you know, you have to decide. The PhD, like I said, uh, I want to say, is like a journey, lonely journey. It's not like, yeah, you're spoon-fed by profs. You know, you do this, do that, and so on. You have to decide your own course of action. You have to decide the area that you want to do research and you have to do your own literature review. You have to collect data yourself, do the analysis and present new findings to a committee who then decides, okay, you're worthy of a PhD. Yeah. You know, so you may have had excellent grades in your preparatory courses and so on, but if you cannot come up with something new, you know, in terms of contributing to theory, academic theory, you don't get a PhD. And that's why people take seven years, eight years, many, you know, many a time to do a PhD. I managed to finish it in four years by the grace of God. Three wow. Years, three years, 11 months. I was forced to because I had leave only for four years from the company that I was working for, you know. So I had to finish it. So it was close to 13, 14 hours a day. Believe me, I've crossed my heart telling the truth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, I mean, uh, it took me five years to, to complete my, my bachelor's. Yeah, so. you're undergrad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what happened was, so after my coursework, I had to decide on a topic to do research. Now, typically... The students who do a PhD, especially in this part of the world, like I said, you have to come up with something new. And I was doing work in the area of strategy, right? Strategy in international business, strategy in marketing and so on. So strategy is essentially a field that draws a whole lot of literature, knowledge from economics, sociology, psychology and so on, right? Uh, so these were all very academic for me. I wanted to do work in an area where I knew I've actually dirtied my hands. And that was international trade. I used to buy and sell, buy from Argentina, sell to Bangladesh, you know, process in India, sell to Sri Lanka and so on, you know, international trade. So I used to do a lot of such, uh, uh, such operations. So I wanted to do, I wanted to contribute to knowledge that possibly would inform international trade and international business. Makes sense. Yeah. So uh, my committee, some of my committee members said, you know, you'll have to think with, you know, you'll have to talk, you'll have to do work in areas which are, current as far as academic thinking is concerned and but i was look you know thinking of doing something which is more relevant in terms of from a from the corporate world and i used to do a lot of international trade like i said so there were many at times being in india being from india and sourcing from india there were many a time when i had to you know withdraw products from the market you know because defective quality and quality issues and so you on you couldn't was, sell them anymore because i it couldn't just, sell yeah. them anymore that could damage that could kind of uh, hurt the consumers and you know I used to sell to big steel plants huge steel plants if there's a defective product the whole bloody thing could oh bomb. my gosh imagine there's a spill out in the plant and so on in the steel plant yeah. so there were challenges like this and I had to take decisions to withdraw products from the market my bosses would say no you cannot withdraw because that's lost sale that's the kind of money that you spend what will the investors imagine say? the what? blowback though exactly what will people say and so on you cannot so I was caught in between the dilemma a managerial dilemma. So I thought this is something that I can work on, you know, as part of my um, PhD thesis. And I took a lot of convincing. Fortunately, my advisor was also working in this space. He had done some preliminary work with a couple of, with a prof from Ivy, you know, Ivy School of Business. And uh, they looked at, you know, sourcing products from China and why there are so many recalls of products from China, right? That was a starting point. So there was Professor Beamish, who was a leading international business scholar from Ivy School of Business. He, along with... Uh, my advisor had kind of looked at uh, data and, and found that 
at that time in the years uh, 2006 to 2008, 2008 was the time I joined my PhD, there were a lot of product recalls in the US, you know, uh, toys especially, there a lot of them being recalled. And uh, uh, so what happened was there was a big backlash. Most of these companies started blaming the Chinese companies because ah. they used to source a lot of stuff from China, right? And they started blaming uh, the Chinese companies. And so my advisor, along with Professor Beam, looked at data and said that the reasons for the recall is not really because of the Chinese. The reasons for the recall were because of defective designs being made back in the U U.S. So why yeah. are you then blaming the Chinese? Scapegoating, you know, whatever yeah, you call exactly. it. Yeah, you know, exactly. Scapegoating. So, so this, was, this was a topic which was quite relevant at that point. You know, I thought this was important. And more so the fact that you know, people get affected with defective toys. You know, you're having little children use toys. You know, things going into their mouths and so on. So, uh, so that actually uh, kind of uh, made me realize that, okay, uh, maybe decide that, okay, this is a, a potential area where I could possibly contribute academically. Okay. You know? I have a kind of a, a question. You mentioned that when you were looking at the topic, it was a practitioner-driven phenomenon and not a lot of research had been done in the area. I'm kind of curious a little bit, what is a practitioner-driven yeah. phenomenon? And then just a little bit, if you could explain maybe why, I mean, product recalls are massive, especially in situations where the consumer is at a risk. So, you know, if you want to touch on a little bit why, why is there not enough why yeah. is there not so much research? It's, at that time, there wasn't much of research because it's a dry area, product recalls. Who's interested? Everybody's interested in, you know, psychological perceptions of people, blame attribution, all kinds of high-sounding words. But product recalls, uh, mundane topics such as product recalls, really didn't catch the academia's uh, attention. And uh, so, uh, so my advisor said, okay, fine, just look at what people have been writing. So typically when you do research, this is what happens in all these research schools and when you do a PhD, you're looking at a particular topic, you first see what people have said about that topic. And who? The academics. What if the academics sell? Because at the end of the day, I have to present my thesis to a bunch of academics, not yeah. practitioners, you know, not company managing directors and so on. A bunch of academics who've had four PhDs and, you know, like people like Craig Kaczynski. <laughs> sorry, I can Craig. Talk to Craig Kaczynski. Hi, Craig. <laughs> Craig Kaczynski is a high end, he's a highly uh, uh, accomplished academic. So he will start looking, asking questions from a really, from an academic point of view. So what does that mean? So when I'm saying practitioner, is at the operating level. Okay, I'm okay. buying and selling. There's a product, product which is defective. It comes, comes back. Now, why has there been a, a, a defective product? Now, what do I do thereafter? These are some of the Questions that managers would ask. Now, what do I do? Why should I not recall? Why should I recall? You know, see, these are what, what I call practitioner-driven phenomena. So all that's been written, or when I say practitioners, is basically what happens to the manager. But when somebody like Craig Kuzinski asks, why would firms recall? Or why would firms not recall? He's looking at it from a very academic point of view, what, what essentially means that I'm drawing that phenomena I'm elevating that phenomena from a very operating level concerning managers to a higher level of abstraction that would then enable me to generalize it across a, a larger domain. So if I looked at the phenomena from a toy industry, I evaluated it, came up with some findings using insights from an academic point of view, raised the level of abstraction, and that, that can then get applied to the Say the auto industry can be applied to the food industry, and so that's what I mean by academic. 
E is equal to mc squared. That's what Einstein uh, kind of you know, came up with. Or force is equal to mass into acceleration. That's the purely mathematical uh, speculation by scientists, right? So F is equal to ma is now kind of used across, you know, the way you have to drive an engine, the way you drive hydraulics, and so on and so forth. So that's what I mean by raising the levels of abstraction. Einstein, 100 years ago, when he came up with E is equal to mc squared, nobody, everybody thought that, what, what is he talking about? <laughs> it's pure mathematics. Yeah. It's purely speculative based on mathematics, which is now being realized now. All the idea, the, the fact that they found the black hole and so on, is all basically what Einstein did 100 years ago. No? Wow. Um, so, uh, y you say... Yes. You say mundane, but it's it <laughs> seems from looking at your research that there's a lot of pressures and psychological aspects yes. to how recalls are managed and presented. Exactly. Um, can you talk to talk us through like some of these decisions that are made by companies? Yeah. So what so what I did was uh, at the PhD level, I looked at what people are saying. Sorry, I have to go back a little bit. Oh, all I good. All good. You can edit it. You know, cut all the crap. It's <laughs> all good. You know, so. So I looked at the literature what at that point in 2009 and 10, and I found there were just 160 articles, 166 articles, academic articles that have been written on this phenomenon of product recalls, right? So, so any phenomenon, any research phenomenon, folks, Brittany and Dylan, if you were to study it, it's a new thing. So what do you do? You look at the phenomena. What are some of the causes of the phenomena? What are some of the consequences of the phenomena? What are some of the moderators? What actually drive or what are some of the contextual factors that influence the phenomena? This is what research is all about. So when I looked at literature, what academics have said about this phenomenon of product recalls, I found that whatever little work, 160 odd papers that were written, was actually talking about the consequences of phenomena. A product recall has happened, so what happens to the company? Typically, how would you look at uh, company performance? what happens to their market share, what happens to the share value, and so on. So a large part of what has been written from an academic point of view is essentially looking at what are some of the consequences of the phenomena. So I think there's a whole world of knowledge that needs to be or can be generated using this very you know, practitioner or very mundane phenomena <laughs> of product recalls. And that drove me into looking at what are some of the causes, what are some of the you know, uh, factors that condition such a, such a phenomenon. And I started looking at, from a company point of view, what are some of the factors that drive managing such recalls? So what is management of a recall was the next question I asked. What does one mean? What does a company do when it, face, when it is faced with a, with a product recall? Three things. One is recall the product from the marketplace. A decision to take to recall the product. Second is compensate the consumer. Restitution. And the third is communicate to whoever is concerned. Now, who is this whoever is concerned? The various stakeholders assigned or related to the company. Who could be the stakeholders? The shareholders, the two broad stakeholders are the shareholders and the consumers, right? Who else could be stakeholders? You have the media, you have the government, you have banks, you have the local population, you have the community in which the company. But the two, all of them have their own requirements. All of them have their own expectations from the company, right? Don't we? Don't we have expectations of McEwen? Who are the key stakeholders of McEwen? The students, the faculty, the parents of the students, <laughs> right? The government in our case, because we are owned by the government. Yeah. They're funded by the government. People, employees. So each one of us has take expectations from the company. 
or from the organization right exactly hmm? if if the expectations were the same then it's easy for the company to manage no but if expectations are different how would a manager the person who's managing the company manage Yeah, well, because it's completely the public who is using the product and the stakeholders who are making the money have very different interests when it comes to a product recall, I exactly. imagine. Exactly. So when you're defining stakeholders, it has a wide range of activities, the shareholders, the consumers, and the consumers, you have parents and the children. They're two different, you know, very important as far as toys are concerned, right? Yeah. You have the government and so on. So so what so when you look at so essentially when you're managing a product recall you're essentially managing the expectations of these stakeholders these different stakeholders this is what I'm saying managing mm-hmm. it's so managing so you have when you when you have to decide to recall the product who gets affected who is the happiest the consumer because he's not been exposed to yeah. bad product but who's unhappy the shareholders because you know withdrawing the product from the market would essentially mean loss of market share loss of opportunity loss of all those ma- expenses that you take to withdraw and loss of reputation loss yeah. of, so what happens to investors you say what well, this company i'm going to invest in this company i'm going to withdraw right so shareholders get so when you're withdrawing the product from the market when you're recalling the product especially a defective product the consumer is happy the stake the shareholder is not happy That's what happened to me as a manager. I had to withdraw products from the UK. My boss said, "No way, you're going to do it." Okay, he has to report to the board, who essentially is a shareholder. You know, represent the shareholder. Mm-hmm. They're all happy with a hundred million dollar withdrawal from the marketplace, right? So, how do I take a decision? How do managers take a decision? What are some of the factors that drive such decisions? Is the first, you know, how do you take a recall decision? And and following that is how do you rest? How do you uh, compensate your consumer? Restitution. If I pay, if if the compensation is huge, I pay double. So what am I conveying to the public? There's something wrong with my production processes, right? There's something really wrong with me. And a big company like Coke or Pepsi had to find. That's what happened to Johnson Johnson's drugs. You know, when they came Tylenol many years ago, people died, started dying using that. Something happened, and then, and then they, they, they it was a loss of face for Johnson and Johnson. right people start doubting the company's process investors start wondering hey am i have i invested in the right company well, right so the you, public too i would imagine cuz johnson and johnson makes a bunch of baby products, products and then if you're giving people you know i think it was the baby powder also they had exactly. a massive had class a, action lawsuit exactly yeah so there you are you've said it uh, britney you know class action suits public litigation consumer movements So all these are backlash, you know, public backlash. So how do you take such a decision? Whereas if I pay a small compensation, the message that I communicate to the consumers is that oh, it's not a problem; it's just a small. <laughs> so the consumer is also the public is also not really. Uh, consumer may not be happy, but the the public would okay, okay, it's not a big problem anyway. It's like a psychological exactly. effect of being like, exactly. not a big deal. Not a big deal, exactly. Hmm. So that's the challenge managers face. You see how relevant it is. Right? No, that's huge. That's a huge part of business. Yeah, so this is the second part. And the third is how do you communicate to these different stakeholders so you're managing their expectations? What happened Rogers? There was a big oh, screw up yeah. there, right? The Basically, Rogers outage. Outage. What happened? Basically that was a service defect. Rogers is the product that Rogers is offering is a service, right? Communication service. So there was a defective piece or defective during that period yeah so what i remember i couldn't watch my movies i couldn't work you know 
Yeah, people could compensate the people three dollars. Like, yeah, but what happens? The company could have sat back and said, you know, it's not my problem. It's somebody else. It blame the regulator, blame the whatever. But what happened? The CEO came out and apologized, isn't he? Didn't he come on TV? Yeah, he did. Yeah. So that is communication, strategic communication. How do you communicate so that okay, even if Brittany, even if uh, uh, I've given you a wrong product, if I come back and talk to you and tell you, you know what? I'm sorry. There's been an issue. You know, a large part of that gets assuaged. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why communication is important. So when I looked at academic research, I found that there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work on consequences. Some of the, you know, uh, uh, the effects of on companies. You know, like yeah. Drop in, mainly it has been drop in share values. The more the, the the moment there is a recall, product recall, the company's share values drop. So what is what what happens when share values drop? What actually does it signify? Investors are withdrawing the market yeah. from the company, you know? So there's been work there. So I didn't want to touch that space. So the other space was managing because that's more relevant. You know, you're giving contributing to knowledge that would probably inform regulators, inform companies and so on. And that's why I decided to take that as my research topic. All right, we're going to take a short break and we will be right back. All right, it's ad time. We like coffee a latte. One of our favorite places to go is being around the world, right behind McEwen's Building 11, Allard Hall. They have a ton of great drinks and snacks and swings, too. Students get a 10% discount when they show their student ID. They're located a block north of Allard Hall, like I just mentioned, downtown Edmonton. And you can find them on Instagram at B-A-T-W underscore E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N exclamation point. Check them out. All right. Uh, welcome back. Um, Murli, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to get right back into it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you found in your own research about product recalls? We talked a little bit about why you got into it. And let's talk about a little bit more what now the, the, the chunk of the meat of the what meat. the meat of <laughs> yeah. the product recalls. Thank <laughs> Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, uh, Brittany. Yeah. Like I said, the two areas that I worked on are uh, uh, Time to recall, you know, what drives companies to recall quick or delay a recall? The second research question was, what drives companies to compensate consumers the way they do, right? It's high compensation or is it low compensation, to put it very simply. So the first question, so typically my findings were, I, I don't want to use theories I basically, uh, you know, to 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 elaborate. I don't want to elaborate too much on theories, so yeah. academic theory. To mm-hmm. Make it simple. Uh, I view, I use the behavioral theory of the firm and uh, uh, and uh, signaling theory to to kind of argue some of the hypotheses that drove uh, my studies. Right. So so the findings are that uh, you know in terms of uh, uh, recall timing, when would a company recall fast or quick? It all depends on the severity of the of the recall or severity of the crisis. Now, product recalls, uh, uh, academics have mentioned or done research to say that product recalls, although, like I said, was a very mundane topic, is also an important organizational crisis. And that's what some of the leading academics have kind of classified product recalls as, as you know, as an important organizational crisis. So having said that, the crisis, severity of the crisis is, is one thing, or hazard severity, consuming a, a poisonous product or a 
or a defective piece of uh, defective toy or a defective car, you know, that could lead to accidents and then yeah. deaths and so on and so forth, right? Costing so, a lot more money in the long run. Costing yeah. a lot of lot, lot more money. So so what happens is the, the higher the higher severe, severity of the hazard that the product defect would cause, uh, uh, the more the company would uh, more it more it signals that there is a uh, inherent systemic problem in the company's operations, right? So how does an how does a a consumer know that? How does the public know it if the company withdraws the product fast or recalls the product fast? So the faster the company recalls the product, the more it signals that there is a uh, there is a concern in the in, in the company's operations, and that could lead to a backlash from both the public and the investors. The consumer is happy, so companies necessarily delay recalling. Really, and they that's been my finding, including the toy industry. They delay the recall so that they have sufficient time to find out who's actually responsible and then can, you know, blame that person at least when they communicate to the consumer. That's the general inference. Now, in order to say that whether they blame or not, uh, that was not a finding, but that's a speculation based on previous work, right? Because companies are pretty tight-lipped. You know, they wouldn't give you an interview. You know, I wanted to interview companies, but they wouldn't give an interview because they know if they give an interview, it goes to the public and media is a very important stakeholder. They love to make a, you know? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so that's one important finding. Uh, the, the second finding is, uh, if, if the hazard severity is not as much, it's not a problem. Companies, because the costs are not high, they can re recall faster, public is not affected because there's no death, it's just a minor fall and so on and so forth, right? So there's not an issue. Only when the severity is high, then there is a, this thing. That's the first one. The second is, if the product is made in-house or it is designed by the company, and typically in the toy industry, 90% of the products are outsourced from China and you know, other developing economies. So, so what happens is, uh, although it's manufactured, outsourced essentially means it's manufactured outside the United States or Canada where these companies are located, right? But the designing of the product is done in-house. That's their trade secret. That's their, you know. The whole design is done in-house. Yeah, right. like Apple's design yes. in California. Yes, Apple's design is in Silicon Valley, but it's manufactured in Foxcom, China or Taiwan and all those places. Yeah. Now they're moving to India with all those Chinese issues. Right? So, so defects can be, or problems could be because of uh, defective design or defective manufacturing. Manufacturing would mean, you know, the long supply chain. You know, mm -hmm. Somebody sitting in Hong Kong, you're actually... Essentially, placing the order to a company in Hong Kong, who then gets it manufactured in mainland China or Indonesia, India, wherever, right? So, so they can blame it off there. So, so in the case of a manufacturing defect, they can they'll withdraw quickly. It's not a problem. They can recall quickly because they can always blame the manufacturer, and that's what the Chinese did. That's what Mattel did back in 2007. They started blaming the Chinese manufacturer. In fact, some of them. I believe some of them even committed suicide in Hong Kong because oh, of no. oh, they God. lost all their business. And, wow. And that's when Mike advisor uh, and Professor Beamish found this out and said that 70% uh, or large percentage of the recalls have been because of their defective designs. Yeah. Right? So, so defect, if, they're, if, they're, if, they're, if the defects are because of defective designs, then they're a little cautious in recalling quickly because then it communicates to the stakeholders that shareholders is an issue. That's wow. really interesting because... The idea of kind of saying, 
Well, it's well, it's not. We're we also are a victim of this. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Recall. Uh, we didn't do it. You didn't like, do it. It's yeah. Not, and the first thing, if anybody is to blame somebody else, right? That's a that's human nature, right? Yeah. I blame it on somebody else. Nobody Pass wants the to buck. take this. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> wants <laughs> yeah. to take it. Nobody take wants it. to take responsibility. That's it's so interesting. Like you, you talk a lot of. Uh, you see in the news a lot about just car recalls. Yes. And and I'm experiencing that myself. My my vehicle has. I think three different recalls on it right now, and I, really? haven't, I haven't had the time to to go, go to in and get it done. And one of the recalls, they don't have a solution for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an emissions problem. Uh, it, problem. Mm-hmm. it says that it does not meet the can- standards. Canadian standards for emissions, but they <gasps> don't they don't have a, they don't have a way to fix solution, it. Yep. So I mean, it's a recall, but can't do you anything about it. You don't give your car back, do you? You don't give your car back. You still drive it, no? Exactly. It's like, can't they just give me a new one? Yeah, like, give, I me, mean, give me one that is better. You know? It's not going to explode. I guess that's... It's just really bad for the environment, I guess. Oh, no. Even though it's really good on gas, it's there just you are. the emissions. Why would they not want to give you a new one? Because extra costs and those costs will get reflected in their profit and loss statement that goes to the investors. And then all kinds of problems, right? So that's, 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 that's so much so relevant, eh? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's so relevant. So I'm Yeah, sorry. I'm kind of curious because we've talked... Like you mentioned very briefly, remedies. And Dylan was just saying that there is no remedy for one of the things that's being recalled on his car. What are the remedies? Like I'm, I'm coming to that. Oh, well, okay. that's the second well, part of my research. This first, first is the time to recall, you know. <laughs> like I said, the three aspects to managing a, effect, a recall effectively. One is time to recall. The second is remedies offered. And the third is communication. A lot of work already done in communication. What remains to be done, that's well, that's so these time to recall and you know remedies are the one which I worked on as part of my research PhD. Right? Perfect. So having so the third thing is price. Higher the price of the product, what does it signify? Big value, no? It's something good. The product is of some great value. So if the price of the product is high and there is a defect, companies are cautious to recall. You know, for obviously it'll come for obvious reasons, communicate that there is an inherent or systemic problem in the company. Mm-hmm. And especially if it is even more, if it is serious or if the hazard is severe and the price is high, it's even more complicated, even more uh, signal, signals even bigger damage. Oh, or the perception that consumer, the public would have is even more, right? No, the expensive product, these guys don't have a proper systems and proper systems in place to kind of, you know, produce well or quality checks and yeah. so on and so forth, right? So this is the first part of my work. Can, and you won't believe me, Brittany and Dylan, it took me, whenever I finished my PhD, 2012, right? I defended my thesis in 2012, then I formally got my degree in 2013. It's taken me close to seven, eight years to publish this work. Oh, wow. wow. This time to recall, because, you know, they stopped, and it's got published in a very top uh, journal, Journal of Business Research. And, you know, it's difficult to sell an acad- uh, 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 a practitioner piece with an academic flavor, you know, uh, to a top academic journal. It took me seven years, Brittany and Dylan. Got published just this year. Oh, well, congratulations. Yeah, that's fantastic. They wanted us to get additional data. They wanted to justify, you know, raise that level of abstraction, be more theoretically coherent with what I'm saying, with what the existing literature is, and so on and so forth. So this is the first finding. The second one happened a little earlier. You know, second one was about the restitution remedy uh, that I talked about. So... For the toy industry, you know, you could have a range of remedies. One is uh, uh, make some, you know, replace parts of the product. That's the lowest end, lower end. And at the higher end is refund with a bonus. 
and in between you have replacement and all that you you take the product and the product is replaced so this is a range of uh, you know remedies for the toy industries no remedy is there is no such variable called no remedy yeah because there is a there still i've got a recall on my nissan rogue it says some uh, not an emission problem there's some some uh, some engine problem some engine problem they say if you have a problem you stop by the roadside and then you know ask for roadside assistance but there is some they're still working on the solution there's no solution yet but at least they've acknowledged that there is a problem yeah not probably there is a solution but they don't want to give it up so early because it's expensive <laughs> who knows yeah exactly that's why you don't get interviews with these companies because they don't want to divulge their uh, you know so 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 in the toy industry i found the same uh, result that higher the uh, the compensation more it signified that there is an issue higher the compensation and the severity of the hazard the more the issue more it it signals that there is a problem with the company the company is admitting himself you know what there has been a problem so i'm replacing it free of cost or i'm right if i if i feel that okay uh, or if i want to avoid paying or signaling this i'd say you know what there's just a uh a, a, a part that has to be replaced or 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 i'll just replace the whole product i won't refund it refund is what i buy a toy <laughs> i get refunded and i can take the money and buy a toy from somewhere else no yeah exactly so i'm losing the market whereas replacement i still have the company the buyer i'm mm-hmm. replacing the product right so so what drives these decisions you know so you see the there is a pattern to decision making absolutely behavioral theory of the firm that's what theory is that's what the academic theory is all about now this finding can be kind of extra extended to the other industries see what happens in the in the auto industry what happens in the food industry laptop industries and any any kind of crisis an organizational crisis where actually there's a transaction buying and selling a product and service right yeah. so uh, uh so that's my next uh, uh probably phase of research to see you know are, are these findings nuanced or is it just the toy industry that he has these findings but i'll say no you can extend this with, with the to the to the car industry also universal. to the pharmacy industry yeah. also you know yeah because it sounds like you're not talking about something that is unique to one industry industry i mean i think even like public health measures and exactly. kind of how we deal with that organizational crisis like really you're looking at psychology and how exactly. people measure like What's the saying? Uh, better to ask forgiveness than to ask for ask permission. For permission. Yeah. So it's kind of like, at what point do we hmm, like exactly. figure it out? Um, and, I, and I like the the part where you mentioned um, like the 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 higher the the restitution is, the higher the problem, the bigger the problem. So these companies paying out just a little bit is them trying to say. Well, it's not a big problem. It's not a big, <laughs> not problem. A big problem. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, want to manage manage those expectations, manage or not signal systemic problems in your plant. Wow. You know. So 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 this is what academics call behavioral theory of the firm, and that's kind of uh, designated as behavioral. And you can use this understanding across other industries, other other crises that you can come about. Are there any other kind of organizational crises that you you've thought about applying this theory to no, already I'm 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 look I'm I'm not uh, thought about it I'm thinking of the auto industry but I'll need some time for that 
I'm working, I've kind of extended this to the understanding of resilience, you know. What is resilience? You know, you said, how would you look at a pandemic in one of your uh, previous uh, uh, questions? Yeah. So, exactly. So the whole idea about resilience is part of this thing about managing recall. So managing a recall essentially means what? Managing a crisis. Yeah. There has been a crisis. The crisis could be because of me. Crisis could be because of the production fellow. Crisis could be because of the supply chain issue and so on. But there is a crisis and that has led to a defective product. Now, how do I manage it? Crisis could be, like I said, internal. Crisis could be external. Crisis could be a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, Anything could be a cause of a crisis. And no? that's that's the interesting thing about it that I've found over, over the course of our last couple of years during a pandemic is every company has used the pandemic as an excuse in some aspect or another, whether it be uh, honest or just a scapegoat. Of, exactly. Oh, there's a global pandemic, so there's a shipping shortage. You know, there's a the, uh, exactly, exactly. Like, how how long are we going to hold that out? Because I think you know, there can only be a certain amount that we can blame on a global pandemic before we are resilient in moving forward and just pushing past. Well, it. yeah, and what I'm thinking is, you know, hearing the theory and how all these expectations are managed by the public and by a private or public. Like, think about all of the stuff that's coming out right now with, like, how were public health measures lifted and the criticism and the demanding that, like, we want the meeting minutes to figure out how government was making the choice. And, you know, they're trying to make the public happy and say, oh, no more restrictions, open for the best summer ever. But then there's also the real actual pandemic going on. So, honestly, like, applying this to how those decisions are being made. How do we keep the public happy? How do we keep the government happy? This How isn't we... a business thing anymore. This Excellent. is a, this is a this is a global thing at the moment. Yeah. Excellent. You've you've actually answered my question, or answered what I'm planning to kind of you know. Uh, you've you've actually told me. You've you've expressed <laughs> what you know. When I get too excited, I lost for words. So excuse me for that. Yeah. Pardon me for that. So typically, like you said, you're managing expectations of stakeholders. Now the pandemic is a government crisis. Yes. Right. Who's a decision maker? The government. Right. Hmm? The government, like I said, in a crisis, you have to manage expectations of various stakeholders. So the government is a decision maker. There is a crisis. Now, I said the factors of a crisis, the reasons for a crisis could be internal, could be external. Internal is your own working. Your operations are not good. You're not able to do your appropriate due diligence or your suppliers. Checks and balances are poor. Something could be external, the pandemic. So that's been established in literature. Crisis could be because of external and internal makings. So external could be an economic crisis, right? A recession. The companies go through recessions. How do you ma- how do they manage this crisis? So what is the government? Who, who what is the who, who are the various stakeholders for the government? The public, the various institutions, the companies, and the political party to which it belongs to. Yeah. Go. Right. The bureaucrats take the decision. So there is there is this political ideology. The political parties who have their own ideologies that drive a lot of these decisions during the crisis, right? Jason Kenney was pushed to... Uh, open up, yeah. Open up, why? Not because he had a, you know, God said, let the thing be open <laughs> so you open. No, because he was under pressure, Yeah. Yeah. right? To open up. Whereas some of the governments have not, have not opened up. But it's funny because in this particular operational crises, he ended up making 
everybody mad. Like he really he made nobody happy. He didn't make the ones that wanted to open happy. He didn't you can't make, make the everybody ones that happy wanted to close happy. If you try, you're not going to make anybody happy. No, he didn't make. I imagine like Alberta Health probably very happy. So it's kind of Doctors. he he managed to make all of the wrong moves. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and and somehow he's still hanging on to you know he's like I stepped down, but he's still here. Yeah. You know, for, for a bit. <laughs> He's cutting down uh, funding. The doctors are the worst hit. Yeah. yeah. They, they, you have to provide doctors with resources. You don't provide doctors with resources. How are they going to discharge their duties at the time of a crisis? Yeah. Mm-hmm. People are dying. You know, some of the. So the issue is okay, so the solution is I'm telling you, privatize medicine, medical care. Right? No public medicine. Make it private. In India, is private, right? A lot of it is private. If I don't get it from one doctor, I can go to another door. I don't have to wait for six months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But then he cannot do it because of political pressures. Right? He cannot raise provincial taxes. He cannot include provincial taxes. You know, so that's in a very important stakeholder for us here at McKeven. We have to tide over crisis. When we take decisions to tide over crisis, we have to take a very important stakeholder's expectations into account. That's the government. Absolutely. You know, so how relevant it is. You know, so the, the work that I'm maybe it's not you can't uh, it's not one for one, and you know, but you can extrapolate the findings to to explain some of the challenges that you know firms go through or any organizations go through the time of a crisis. Absolutely. So I mean, you did touch on it a tiny bit here and there, but kind of. What now that you have finally got your your research published? What is next? Are you working already on some new projects, um, or do you have even like a dream project? Like yes. what would be? Yes. Yeah. Tell I'm us actually, all Thank about you. It. Thanks for asking that question. Now, I, my research at, uh, ever since I joined McKay after PhD has been along through two broad areas. One is product recalls, is crisis management. The other one is entrepreneurship. You know, I'm looking at social entrepreneurship, commercial entrepreneurship, and and uh, so what are the, some of the contextual antecedents that drive entrepreneurial behavior and then bordering on issues of sustainability and so on and so forth. So as far as, so these are the two, three broad areas that I'm working on, you know. So, so in terms of product recalls, I'm looking at uh, consolidating these findings, probably replicating the study uh, across multiple industries and see if there are any industry uh, level nuances that drive such decisions. Is it different in the food industry? Is it different in the pharma industry? Is it different in the auto industry? Yeah. Well, I'm saying it is the same. It will be the same. I may need to check that. Right? The hypothesis. Because, we'll follow up with you in five years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the consumer is different in the case of the toy industry. You have two. One is a child and one is a parent. The ones who take the decisions are the parents and not the child. Right? The child is a baby. What is he or she know <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. It's the parent who takes the decision. Their mindset is different than that of the child, right? It's not the case of a in the case of an automobile. You want to buy an automobile, you go buy an automobile, right? Because there are cases when you have to depend on your wife and all that, right? The wife says she likes this, and so I buy this. She wants the minivan, you <laughs> want the Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but that's not a rule. That's just an ex, maybe exceptions to the rule. But in the case of a toy, it's the parent necessarily who buys. So the so the consumer psych, the consumer section is completely different. So is there, are there differences across the other industries? So industry level nuances. The other thing is, how do firms learn in the process? Is there a learning at all? You know, learning, organization learning is a is a hot area of academic research. Now, Adapting how do firms, and changing. Yeah, you know, how with do they it. learn? How do they change? You're very right. 
how do they adapt to changing circumstances all that is a process of learning no so i want to extrapolate these findings or extend these into organizational learning from such crises how do firms learn from crises how do governments learn from crises economic crises we had a petrol crisis right prices of gas dropped to 25 and what's happening here when it was uh, all fine make hay while the sun shines right all the profits yeah. were doled out yeah right and now we are lost and we went into a deficit <laughs> yeah right and there so the petrol crisis led to people believe okay you can't be the same like before look at other diversifying save the money now we are in surplus hopefully the government saves the money you oh. know what actually strikes me as a little bit interesting is like i think there and i mean i'm not an academic by any means but i would be interested to know how product recall reaction varies during times like right now when there's inflation and because you are paying more for stuff and because people are really trying to stretch their dollar is there a more intense public backlash to when things don't work how they should i mean you would expect that would happen Brilliant. but that's that's a good area good thought thank you uh, you're very welcome in fact that's another area but <laughs> uh, actually in my research i have not really controlled for the economy yeah so cuz that's interesting for, mm, that uh, yeah that's a good good uh, good thought will the decisions be different in the case uh, of a recession and so on oh, that's a good good uh, Thank you Brittany. You're very welcome. We're, Anytime. We're always here to offer uh <laughs> no, no, ideas I, I, and Excellent. That's that's a very good thought. I tell my students, you know, the only difference between you and me uh in fact the kids these days are much smarter than any of us, right? I tell them the only difference between you and me is my maybe my gray hair <laughs> and maybe a PhD otherwise they're much smarter than us. And I said I learn I do learn a lot from my students. as much as i tried to learn myself you know we all think so differently right Absolutely. and it, being able to have these discussions round table discussions podcasts and Excellent. and whatever is uh opening doors to new ideas new and ideas and this is a very good thought what mm-hmm. happens when uh, uh different economic but that's not been controlled for in my research i assume that it's the same across uh across uh Yeah, I'd probably need to do a cross country. Yeah, and it might evaluation. be like I would think variable, but personally I would think that in a time like right now, maybe the small remedy is not going to be enough because people are like, you know, maybe yes. I spent a big portion of my budget on this. Maybe I was eating macaroni and cheese for a month <laughs> so I could buy yeah, this yeah. and then it doesn't yes, work. Yes, so, yes, yeah. The thing is, yeah, I I probably need to do what you call what one calls a longitudinal study. Mm-hmm. Essentially, Ten uh, years ago, recall timings were this. The economy was this. Now, recalls are this. The economy was this. So, is there a difference? Mm-hmm. If for a similar recall, is there a difference in economic conditions, or for the similar economic conditions, or for different economic conditions, <laughs> are they? <laughs> yeah. You know, essentially, what it means that I need to do a longitudinal study. That's a good thought. Thank you, Brittany. Yeah, you're very. You're welcome. Any time. I'm here all <laughs> week. <laughs> Um so you had studied what companies were doing from your perspective what is the best way to do a product recall and um manage the organizational crisis when it happens That's a very difficult question to answer <laughs> yeah, like you know? it's a it's a very loaded <laughs> it's a very question difficult. Yeah it's a very loaded question it all depends on uh, the context the situation that you are in at the end of the day it's the consumers that are important it's the consumer's expectations that you need to be taking care of if there is a if there is a health hazard don't stay away uh, there's research which has shown that 
you know these these investor backlashes public backlashes etc uh would be uh, are of very short term in nature maybe in the short term you'll suffer right but in the long run it'll definitely uh, benefit the company it'll build the brand of the company so it's the, the suggestion or the recommendation would be to go ahead and recall the product in the case of a defective product and and you know or or in another words uh uh take care of consumer expectations first and then um uh and then you'll see in the long face the consequences immediate consequences that may happen but in the long run it's going to benefit you i think that totally makes sense you know i used to own a restaurant uh back in my previous life <laughs> right. before i moved to edmonton for school and uh that was the thing get ahead of it you know if there was an issue with a product um in the restaurant industry there's always an issue with the product Absolutely. so get ahead of it and you know it's easy to give a, a meal away for free to retain that customer Absolutely. and you know you're going to make that customer happy and then yeah. there, there was a lot of times where i had a very very displeased customers with our product and the way we handle it by recalling not i mean recalling their product you call it recalling but, you know offering them compensating, compensating the, the for the the bad experience or whatever always 90 probably close to 90% of the time that customer would be our new biggest fan. Absolutely. They loved what that we handled it in the way that we did well, and things like that. And you're in the red restaurant industry yeah, as well, Brittany. Yeah, what I was going to say is it in my years of experience, it is always better to say I'm so sorry, like send the table out and let this person know we're recooking their steak because we're not going to send them out a steak they didn't order or When you have somebody who's unhappy with their experience, what we do is comp their meal but give them a gift certificate Absolutely. to come back and that way you're giving them an opportunity to come back and have a good experience because you have a bad experience and in a restaurant. And you better nail it that second time. You got to nail it you the second it. time. And but that's that's on a small scale. That's on a personal person to person scale, yeah. right. not a big corporation to a consumer scale. Exactly. But probably transferable in the fact that it's customer service Absolutely. and and consumer based yeah uh, uh i don't have research to uh, i've not done research to support this uh, this what i'm just going to say just now the reason for such decisions not happening especially in this part of the world is that you know these ceos such decisions big time recalls you know which millions of dollars are at stake uh, uh, have to have the clearance of the top bosses the ceo and so on and ceos are all very short term right they're they're how are they compensated their compensation is based on their performance in the stock market right and they they are today they're here five years and they move another five years extension they move elsewhere so in the five years there is a recall and the stock markets take the company stock prices take a beating who gets affected the ceo so he doesn't want that he wouldn't want that he'd rather not have it pull on for two five years and then move and then it's mm. somebody else's and problem, somebody else's oh problem. My God. that's the problem that's the unfortunately that's the nature of capitalism in this part of the world wow absolutely i would agree and but i don't have research to support this <laughs> no this but how would we combat that how how i don't i have a I solution that's that's where this whole idea of uh, triple bottom line sustainable operations at all come into being right even though we talk about sustainable business operations which is Uh, you know economic uh, esg and economic social and governance good governance related should be the key objectives you know we are still driven by profits at the end of the day well, the whole the, mindset has to change 
you know? Yeah, absolutely. And no, I just, I find it like, it's so unsustainable to expect an increase in prod like profit quarter after quarter after yes. quarter. And to understand that like people's lives are cyclical. Exactly. And so I think that it's like a season, like it's exactly. okay if we're down 2% this quarter, cause we're going to be up 20% next quarter. So like to change the way we view capital, I mean, exactly. it's no secret on this podcast that I'm not a fan of capitalism, but <laughs> that's unfortunate. <laughs> if we have to make it work, there are hopefully ways to do that. Well, and I, I see a I see a subtle change in in certain industries. I'm in the live entertainment industry, and uh, you know a lot of the organizations that I'm, I'm working with are like, you know, we're trying to become nonprofit. We don't want to be corporations anymore. We're not here for a profit. We want a job. Yeah, sure, mm -hmm. we want to run this organization, but we want to help musicians we want to we want to put on concerts we want to do these things and not have to worry about pleasing our investors exactly. and and worrying about our bottom line because exactly. we don't care about the bottom line we just want to be comfortable in the job that we love doing mm -hmm. and i i that that hits so hard that's like i want to i want to own a not like if i started a restaurant before i was like i would love to start a not-for-profit restaurant exactly because no restaurant tour on the small scale is really there for profits. I mean, like, you're not making a profit. You're not. No, <laughs> there's no profit to be made in the restaurant industry alone. Not a whole lot. But I thought I thought that was a really cool concept. Thank you, thank you, Dylan. In fact, uh, can I take just a minute? Please. More? In fact, that is actually this whole research of mine, coupled with a whole lot of other work that I'm doing in entrepreneurship, is what has led me to now work on you know the economic versus versus the social logic in an organization. Which is more important? Is it the economic logic or is it the social logic? Which is more important, right? The whole idea behind hi hybrid companies, the whole idea behind social entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. the whole idea behind what you just said, non-profit restaurant. Like non-profit, if I don't have profits, how am I going to run the restaurant? How am I going to pay people, right? Yeah. How am I going to, going to grow? There has to be wealth which is, that has to be generated to grow. If your economy has to, that's been history, you know? Yeah. You know, it started from the, what, hunting, nomadic economy to agrarian agriculture. And that's the dawn of civilization where, where you're moving from one phase to another through the profits that are generated through that, you know, the businesses that happen. Agro-business, there's profit, agricultural economy, there's profits generated. So the new youngsters use those profits to industrialize, to learn about industry. And then you have the industrial age. And you have the IT age, I mean, you have the knowledge age, you know, all kinds of... So essentially you need profits, but where does it end? Is it only profits or is it, you know, that sustainable thing which... Uh, and where do the about? profits go? Like, you know, you look at something like the Heritage Festival. Mm. It is a huge festival. It makes enough money that it self-sustains. Exactly. But money from the festival also goes to the community leagues and the community exactly. centers that participate in the pavilions, exactly. which funds their programming throughout the year. So it's kind of like a very sustainable... Now, with inflation, they're like, ooh, we need more money. Exactly. But exactly. yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. Make the profit... Where does the profit go? Back into the people that are in the organization or to the guy at the top at being the top. like... The whole idea behind... You may call me a... Uh, I'm not a great China lover, but then, you know, the the, the whole idea behind the uh, president of China, his, this thing is about common prosperity. Everybody should prosper, not the, the select few at the top who are running... You know, but that's what is happening, uh, uh, Brittany and Dylan. 
you know, globalization, people say globalization. My, I did some work on economic inequality and all that and entrepreneurship. Globalization is reducing uh, inequality between countries, but within countries, you know, the rich are getting richer, yeah. the poor are getting poorer, you know? Absolutely. That's what's been seen. So. So. But it's interesting with, you know, all of these kind of new concepts, like you said, social enterprises, which we've talked about on the podcast before and learned about. And the consumer has also changed and people want something that's a little bit more meaty when it comes to what do you do for the community? Exactly. Benefit corporations. For, yeah. Benefit corporations. Exactly. So Yeah. That's what Fernando, uh, yeah. me and Albena, <laughs> we've just got a big shark grant that's actually working on, uh, three of us have, are working on this B Corp, you know, with this hybrid firms. Yeah. yeah. Hybrid firms. You cannot, but B Corps happen to be one form of hybrid firms. Yeah. That's well, our work. Yeah. That's very interesting. Maybe we will be talking yeah. about that project yeah, on the I mean, podcast. Yeah. So later on. Marley, uh, yeah. uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We, we uh, only have a few more minutes left of the, of the conversation today, but is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to talk about? Um, whether it's, it's just something important to your research or, or about your program, anything like that, that you want to convey to our listeners? Uh, I'd like to convey, the, uh, I'd like to thank McKeown University, although we're not a research, A1 research university, we are an undergraduate university where the focus is on under, undergraduate education. Uh, uh, if you want to do research, you can still do it. The, the, I like the, the McKeown administration really supports this kind of work and uh, research of any form, they don't have, they're not, you know. So I'd like to tell all our research, research community that, uh, that, if you want it, you can do it. You know, there's a lot you can gain from the university, and university really supports a lot of this stuff. And, I'm, and I'd like to thank everybody, Craig Kuzinski, Dr. Craig Kuzinski, who's been very helpful, and that whole ORS Office of Research Services. After he's come, there's been a lot of, and uh, uh, Dr. Craig Monk. I'm not sucking up. It's just. That, <laughs> <you know? laughs> No, they, they definitely are doing important work in our university and, and a, making a lot of uh, important contributions to, to seeing the change. They've been very helpful in the whole process of change that we're seeing moving from a college to a more, you know, university, which has, you know, I, I, for me as a faculty, uh, knowledge creation, that's research, and knowledge dissemination, that's teaching, are two sides of the same coin. Right. So if, you, if you want to be a good teacher, you have to be a good researcher, so. You know, and that's something that we just just uh, discussed in one of our other podcasts with Dr. Annette Trimby. So make sure to check out that episode <laughs> as well. For sure, for sure. And I strongly believe in that. And that's the kind of support we've had from the university. That's, I'd like to put that on record. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, thank you so much uh, again for joining us here today. Thank you, uh, Dylan and Brittany. Yeah, thank you so thank much, you so. Morley. Uh, well... That's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think this podcast is worth recalling, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Ray Bree.